<laughs> M's gotten me into like old cowboy music lately. Oh wow. Oh, like you're cheating hard. No, 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 no. It's much cooler than that. It's like like oh, um, okay. Um, fucking like El Paso or Streets of Laredo, Marty Marty Robbins. That's cool. Good shit, dude. Real good shit. <laughs> Dang, dude, you those harmonies what? are dope. Absolutely, I think like pre. 1960s country is all pretty interesting yeah that's what it is it's like like late 50s 60s yeah Um, because that's the one i was i was singing is like probably from the 1940s like like uh well who's the like hank williams or something yeah yeah hank williams is old yeah hank williams had a really cool i can't remember what we listened to uh we listened to something hank williams it was really good though it was he is really good you know Mm -hmm. what song's fucking fire though is um Uh, dolly parton's mule skinner blues I haven't heard that, no. Oh my god, it's got yodeling in it, and they did a lot of yodeling back then, and it's so amazing. <laughs> we uh, we were listening to some yodeling. Uh, there's a song called uh, She Taught Me How to Yodel, and there's also a, a female one called He Taught Me How to Yodel, but the the guy one is by Yodeling Slim Clark. All <laughs> nice. right. Head on down yeah. to the county fair and Dude, see Yodeling Slim it's Clark. it's fucking wild. Like it is the wild. yodeling, I was like, I, I had a whole new appreciation for yodeling. I guess you know because you grow up in Wisconsin, you hear a lot of like the you know the German um, music. Yeah, you hear like the oompa uh, or what, what they call it. Um, okay, but then you know there's yodeling. But man, this gave me a whole new appreciation for yodeling. It's it's incredibly impressive. You know, and that's part of the reason I really like Queens of the Stone Age. It's so funny. The guy who taught him guitar was a polka musician. And so, like, their tempo is somewhat like polka. It's really weird. And I'm like, I wonder if that's kind of in my blood a little bit to like polka. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I never thought about that. That's interesting. I don't know that. Oh, my God. For sure. Yeah, fuck yeah, yodeling rules. Yeah, dude. It was was some really good yodeling stuff. What was it? Um, who does like uh, no? Oh, the Big Lebowski and Raising Arizona, the Cohen Brothers. They always have really, really good like old country songs in their movies. Like that, that one yodeling song that's like. Do you know that one? <laughs> I don't know that one. It's really good. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm just dipping my toe into yodeling right now. So. Oh, that was a good sentence. Thank you. <laughs> and the water is warm. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. Bravo. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to Under the Pendulum. I'm Chris. Here with Heather. Hello. And Caitlin. Hello. Uh, so we're going to be carrying on with the spooky season. Actually, this is going to be coming out just a little bit for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yay. I can't wait. On this episode, we're going to be talking about our favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone uh, with a brief history of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I did watch a bunch. like Because like, it was so hard to pick an episode that I, I like wanted to, you know, as like I your know. favorite. I don't even think I really have a favorite. I just picked yeah, one that like gave Same. me the gave me the most feels. Mm-hmm. I just picked one I remembered really well from when I was younger. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, and like I I picked one that I didn't know much about, but the information about it was so interesting. I had to to talk about it, but 
Dude, I used to just wait for New Year's Day just for the goddamn um, sci-fi marathon, marathon of twi- the Twilight oh, Zone. Yeah. <sighs> Damn. That's the yeah, only I- way we used to be able to watch it, you know, unless it was like one episode at a time. Yeah, I had a um I had a teacher in high school um who like whenever we were doing like a study thing or you know or just having some like group thing, he would just put on Twilight Zone episodes in the background. That's so fucking So great. I didn't get a lot of work done. Cuz they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I think I was I think I mentioned it talking to you guys, but like season 3 I think is my favorite. It has What almost, was in it, season three? Oh man, so um it's got five characters looking for an exit, which is That's um, a, good one. a good one. Um The Midnight Sun, which I was really close to doing. Which is where is that like, the one where Oh go ahead. Oh go ahead. Is that the oh. one where the sun's about to like explode or like going like cooking everybody alive pretty yeah, much? Yeah, so like so the earth got off its trajectory one. and it's moving That's towards right. the sun. But the twist at the end is it's actually the opposite it's actually moving away and the earth is getting people are like going to be freezing to death soon um dead man's shoes is in that season too where uh, the guy gets the the gangster shoes and then you know all these hilarious mishaps happen i forgot about that one dang oh dummy the the, the dummy one's also in season three. Oh yeah mm-hmm. the I kick don't the kick the one. can one is also yes oh, that one. mm-hmm. that so it's, so it's got all the all the classic ones that's just one of my one of my favorite ones yeah, man, there are so many runner runner ups for me because I just, you know, again, like there's so many like you just just like a bunch you mentioned now. I forgot that I love those all, you know. Yeah, it's so crazy. M showed M M told me about an episode that I didn't remember and I don't actually think I ever saw it. It was called To Serve Man. Yeah. Season um, one. Actually, I know. I think that's also season three. Really? Yeah, I think so. But it's the one where. Aliens come down and, you know, like they it, tell humanity that like, they want to help people and they're there to serve man. Um, mm-hmm. oh, and then yeah. they start people start getting on board and the, the twist at the end is like, it's, it's a, a cookbook. cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. To, I don't remember that one. I, I didn't remember it either. Um, that, that one's been parodied probably um, among the top that's been parodied. Yeah. It's yeah. so funny. I've had one make me cry really hard. Every time I watch it, in fact, it makes me cry. It's um, Which one? the Christmas episode, The Night of the Meek, where this like drunkard, like mall Santa, but this is like the f- 50s, so it's like a department store kind of weird thing, Santa. He's like an alcoholic, and he's an alcoholic because he's so sad that everybody is so sad in the world and that there's like, poverty and like children suffering and stuff like that and he's like that's the reason i drink and like so so at least it's a noble reason to drink but he and he loves children (laughs) and it sucks and then he gets fired and he is on the streets just like crying and stuff and it's like christmas eve i think i remember this one and then he gets a like 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 santa's actual magic sack and like anything anybody wants he can give to them and mm-hmm. then at the end, oh my god! At the end, he gets taken away to the North Pole, and he becomes the real Santa. Oh my god! <laughs> that fucking episode makes me cry every single time. <laughs> Dude, yeah, there was another one actually kind of got me teary eyed. I can't remember the title, but it was like um, this this college professor. He's like super old. He's like an English professor at this like all boys school, 
and he just like loves his job and he's just like i never want to retire um oh. but then like he gets called into the headmaster's office and they're and he basically tells him like sorry we're gonna let you go it's not we're not firing you we just you need to go into retirement you're really old you're like at least 20 years past the retirement oh. age and he's so sad because that's just every and then he gets really he's just like i've never done a meaning, meaningful thing in my life i've never reached anybody so he's like about to kill himself and then you know twilight zone shit happens <laughs> and then he then what? he realizes that he has impacted people's lives or you know his oh students God. lives it's so fucking Wait, sad is that, though is that what they, i know that sounds like <laughs> it they like they get you sometimes is that like a oh henry story they call it where you like you get what you want are you like you realize something at the end i don't know oh like yeah like, yeah and then like like there's like some sort of thing that helps you come to a realization i yeah. guess maybe I, I i don't know like a christmas carol or it's a wonderful yes. life kind of along mm. those lines oh my god yeah well i guess I, we're, we should probably get cracking here then i mean we're, we're yeah. just gonna be we could just go on and on and on oh yeah let's just talk about every single episode in sequence just like a little <laughs> synopsis under the pendulum yeah. is now a twilight zone rewatch podcast oh uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst nope sure wouldn't <laughs> hey that's a good idea so yeah i guess we'll we'll kind of start with um you know, just the origins of the show and of its um, creator, Rod Sterling. Uh, so, yeah, Sterling. I think Heather's Sterling. Oh, my God. I keep saying Sterling. Jeez. I say Sterling because it just sounds good, but I know it's Sterling. But yes, what a wonderful man. Yeah, oh it's, it's it's the the Bram Stoker effect. Stroker. A lot of people say Stroker. <laughs> but Bram Stoker. Stroker. I think I it's a porn to... star. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brian Stroker. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Heather, you I think you're gonna you actually wrote the um bit about about him. I did. So I watched some some documentaries and such. Tell us about this this chain smoking lovely man. Boy was he oh. ever. <laughs> yeah. So Rod Serling was born in upstate New York on Christmas Day, nineteen twenty four, to a doting mother and a father who was a butcher by trade. Both his parents were very supportive, and they told him he could become whatever he wanted to be in life. And his childhood growing up in Binghamton, New York, was happy. So Sterling developed an interest in writing at an early age. He wrote for the school newspaper, and he was also on the debate team. After he graduated high school in 1943, he joined the army in hopes of fighting the Nazis. Woo! And he became a paratrooper at the age of 19. Dang. So Serling also took up boxing while he was in the service and took a great liking to it. And as you'll notice, there are a couple of stories about boxers or stories that feature boxer characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd often write, you know, about what interested him and what he knew. But he was proud to be in the service. However, in 1944, he was sent overseas to fight in the Philippines and then in Japan. Ooh, so he didn't damn. get to fight in Germany against the Nazis, unfortunately. Well, actually, he th- these are pretty bad. It was pretty bad places to be at towards the end of the war. Yeah, they say yeah. that that was the worst. Yeah. Yeah, especially the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was reading one of um, the platoons he was in. It was like a fifty percent survival rate for a certain battle he was in. Mm-hmm. Wow! Crazy. Yeah. Dude. So crazy. So, needless to say, he saw the horrors of war firsthand and he was given a Purple Heart for injuries he sustained in battle. 
1946, he was discharged and sent home. He suffered terrible nightmares, and what he saw there affected him greatly all of his life. Wow. This experience also served to be his greatest inspiration for writing. And then upon his return home, not long after that, his father tragically died of a heart attack. So in 1946, Rod Serling began work in radio, at the same time also attending Antioch College in Ohio. In 1951, he decided to give up his job in radio, and he became a freelance television writer. He wanted to do this because he had been a staff writer at a radio station in Cincinnati for commercials and product testimonial letters, and he called this a dreamless job. It was like no creativity. He'd have to make up like testimonials for products that he necess- didn't necessarily use. Yeah, it, it, wow. you know, probably most of the time didn't fucking work. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So after this, he moved to New York and started writing for a variety of television shows. And when he first started out his freelance career, he received 40 rejection notices in a row. Hey, that reminds me so much of like uh, Stephen King, like in, yeah. in his book on writing. He, as he talks about like getting just a lot of rejection letters and he yep. used to keep his on a nail until yeah. it got so he had so many that um, he couldn't put the nail in anymore <laughs> into the wall. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's common with writers. So don't give up. Yeah, that's right. Keep going. If you're you're a writer, keep going. Keep going. Unless you know you suck. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that to E.L. James. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey, the mister. Mm -hmm. Come on. Oh, that's true, Heather. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Amen. So Serling picked up momentum and worked in live television plays, which were extremely hectic. Everything God. had to be orchestrated in real time, and there was tremendous pressure to get everything right. You you kind of experienced that, Heather, when we did our um, our our old radio show. Oh yeah, because you were doing the Foley shit like right yeah. there, <laughs> all at the same time. That was excellent. I just re I just re listened to that last night. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a fun one. We'll have to do one of those again. Oh my mm-hmm. God, yeah, just just for us, for anything yeah. else. <laughs> So his big break came when he sold his script for Patterns to Kraft Television Theater in 1995, and that's Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Had her own theater, huh? What was it called? Kraft Theater? Yeah, Kraft Television Theater. Kraft Television Theater. (laughs) (laughs) You will ruin this day. (laughs) Well, eventually this script for Patterns won him multiple awards including his first Emmy. And offers for all sorts of projects started to pour in for this exciting new writer. On the tales of this success, he struggled with proving himself, putting pressure on himself to write something as good or better. And this is something he would struggle with forever, just trying to measure up to being good enough to himself. I think when you're like, especially an artist, that's a really important thing to keep challenging oh, yeah. yourself. And, you know, like, yeah. I think what is the satisfaction's the death of progress or something like that. I, I There's like some saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you're too satisfied with yourself, then, yeah, I mean, you're never pushing the envelope. You're never pushing yourself forward. So you don't, right. you know, you, it gets kind of stagnant after a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Very true. So in 1956, he wrote Requiem for a Heavyweight, which was aired on Playhouse 90. It was a 90-minute play about a fighter who completed his last fight, only to realize that he was lost in life after his profession ended, and he embarks on a search for dignity. 
I watched some clips from this and it was really captivating and it like it grabbed me and I felt it got me in the feels. So I would recommend watching that. Yeah, I'll have to check it it out. Requiem for a heavyweight. Okay. Well, this play won five Emmys. Damn, dude. Yeah. And Serling won his second Emmy for Best Telewriter. Well, things were tumultuous for him. Serling faced censorship in his scripts, which he would fight for relentlessly. He was rebellious and proclaimed that no one would tell him what he would write about. Uh, This is exemplified when he wrote a script called A Town That Turned to Dust. And it was about the lynching of Emmett Till. And the story was heavily edited by CBS to avoid controversy. So, needless to say, the final product was a butchery. Um, The network changed almost every key element. They transformed the black man to a Mexican man, changed the location from Mississippi to the Southwest, changed the time period to the 1860s, and the hooded men were replaced with men in homemade masks. Serling believed that prejudice is the most innate evil in our society. And that incident made him realize that television would stop at nothing to shy away from meaningful social issues. He said, better to say something than nothing, when he was in an interview as he reflected on this experience. Well. And, and, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, recurring themes in The Twilight Zone, but, I mean, definitely, like, prejudice and also just, like, suspicion of of people who aren't like you is, is, like, it's a huge reoccurring theme. Um, Absolutely. Oh, and people getting into like group frenzy or mob frenzy, and like mm-hmm. you know him exposing the the niceties into like how like people can be like roving fucking animals. Yeah. yeah, the 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 shelter, which is also one of my favorites too, where the you know it's the neighborhood and the oh my um, god, that's the best. Yeah, they one. all have a party for the doctor, who's the only one who made a bomb shelter, and then they hear on the radio that there's like unidentified you know sh- airplanes. And everybody starts freaking out, but his bunker is only big for only built yeah. for three people. And then, like, you start to see like just people who had known each other for twenty years were good friends just start to deteriorate. Um, and then, like, prejudice, you know, comes out. Um, you know, all these just like the the fear just just yeah. totally makes these people devolve. Oh, yeah, that's it's, one of the most memorable episodes in my mind. For love sure. the shelter. That's yeah. That was also one I was batting around. Yeah, that's Kale's favorite and most memorable. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. So Sterling did not keep quiet about his distaste with the industry. Then some big change, changes started happening. There was a changing of the guard for VP of programming at CBS. And after this, the network was no longer interested in quality programs, but money. And that often meant that the sponsors had a huge influence on the content that aired on the network's programming. Still like that today. Yep. Serling rebelled against sponsor interference. He didn't want to be a conformist and continually compromise under the weight of pre-censorship. And pre-censorship is subjects that writers avoid because they know they will run into difficulties. Yeah, you want you want to kill art. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, <laughs> yeah. which is great. You know, you should. Mm-hmm. He found it ridiculous that drama had become watered down in television. Not soon after this major change, the live television drama died anyway. So in 1957, Serling moved to Hollywood with his family, where he felt very out of place. And then one day, he got the idea for the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone as he was walking through the empty lot of a movie studio. 
Where is everybody was about a world suddenly abandoned, but only one man around to discover it. And of course, there's a shocking twist at the end of the story. This pilot was enthusiastically picked up by CBS, and Serling took the reins on producing The Twilight Zone. So on October 2nd, 1959, the first episode was aired. And television was never the same. It truly wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Serling sought to create a divide between his stories and sponsors' influence, and decided to not restrict himself with pre-censorship. He was so incredibly proud of his work on The Twilight Zone, and he was able to write his specialty, social commentary, under the cloak of science fiction and fantasy. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really smart. That's the best thing about um, anything to do with science fiction, like Futurama or Star Trek or anything like that, like, or Trek, excuse me. If it's science fiction, anything's possible, so there's just any direction you can go, and that's that's the longevity of those shows is really, really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I like how science fiction also can incorporate other genres, um, mm-hmm. like, v- pretty seamlessly, you know? Yeah, because it's cuckoo bananas, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, anything can happen. <laughs> you have a lot of concepts you could play with, you know? I mean, as long as, like... I don't know. I guess like I always thought there should be the rule that it should be somewhat grounded in real science, but it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be locked down by those rules. I think I think there should be like a totally. grounding, though. Yeah, because it could be like scientists with beakers, but then it pans out and they're just being battened around by cats, you know, giant cats. Like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> man. <laughs> Are we all just toys for cats, man? Yeah, man. <laughs> So the fact that he would do this was somehow more palatable to TV executives. And it was a genius move. It was imaginative, imaginative, creative, smart, and captivating. Mm-hmm. There's a reason the show still holds up extremely well after 60 years. Mm-hmm. The truth was that he enjoyed the medium of television and also believed it was the one medium he understood. He didn't enjoy what it had become but he found a way to say something important to the world without that pesky real-world drama television execs were so afraid of. (laughs) Reality, oh Oh, no. Icky, gross. (laughs) His scripts challenged the viewers' ways of thinking in a way that television had not before. He wasn't as concerned about making money off of the show as much as he wanted to create something of quality and something he could take pride in. Sterling would dictate his scripts to a tape recorder, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that is Oh, man, I'd love to hear those recordings. Right? His characters were often underdogs, and he often dealt with themes of redemption. There were also cautionary tales, sort of be-careful-what-you-wish-for scenarios. He loved to punish the villains, and these terrible people would get what was coming to them. I'm sorry, a little bit of a callback. I was just thinking of his... um him recording and like it's just like sounds of him doing dishes or something or like taking a shit or something like, <laughs> ooh, mm, note to sell <laughs> oh, <Got it. laughs> oh what a twist plop <laughs> <laughs> okay okay I'm sorry no it's okay the Twilight Zone universe was often just but it could also be cruel Rod introduced and closed out each episode with monologues summing up the story, urging the viewer to think a bit deeper about each play. 
Which is always such a, like, you know, a highlight of the episode is hearing what he's going to say or like, yeah. you know, what, almost like giving you a clue or something, you know. He guides you to, mm-hmm. to where you're supposed to be. Serling gained fame as the face of this wildly popular show, and he enjoyed his celebrity, but he was also often at odds with it. Now, at a certain point, the fast-paced schedule the show demanded started to take a toll on him. I heard him say that he was working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, working on the show. Jesus. That's crazy. So although the show had a loyal following, winning multiple awards and critical acclaim, the ratings were not particularly high, and the show was canceled and revived more than once. Really? Yeah. Wow. Sterling was writing at a rate and speed that demanded all of his energy, and he felt that his ideas were drying up. Not only that, he was sick of the whole business. Eventually, after five seasons and 156 episodes, 89 of those written by Serling himself, the show was canceled for a third and final time, and Serling was honestly relieved about it. Now, after The Twilight Zone, he created a Western show called The Loner. It was not a traditional Western, and CBS was unhappy with the fact it wasn't more conventional, and Serling publicly pushed back after it was inevitably canceled, and the whole experience ended up being a great disappointment to him. He would go through ups and downs in his writing for the rest of his life. He wrote for a few more projects, created some screenplays, and even worked a short stint in radio, but ultimately was never able to catch quite the same writing success again. However, he was extremely prolific, having written over 250 scripts and winning six Emmys over the course of his career. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. He moved away from the bustle of Hollywood and took up teaching at Ithaca College in the 60s, as well as speaking at colleges around the country. That would have been amazing. The desire to write dwindled as he got older. On June 28, 1975, Rod Serling died after a series of heart attacks, most probably thanks to his three to four pack a day smoking habit. Three to four packs? Yeah. Damn. I don't know how have you ever fucking... s- I know. Have you ever smoked one pack in a day? Mm-hmm. That's like, that's so much. That's my- I have that's to be like... drinking heavily to yeah. get through a pack. Like Absolutely. day Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And I doing, have an, to be and doing an eight ball. Do <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, I don't know. Just even like even smoking two packs. That's like you have to make that part of your job. Your full-time job to be doing that shit because it's yeah. just he, like, it wasn't his job. He was always on screen with the I cigarette. Mean, mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's fucking hard work, man. Gross. Yeah, yeah. You're you you're awake. You have a cigarette. That's all there is to it. So this final heart attack was following an open heart surgery, and he was only fifty years old. Damn, dude. Wow. Yeah. Well, The Twilight Zone is Serling's legacy, and it is here to stay. It has captivated audiences for decades. As you mentioned before, Kate, every year on New Year's Day, for as long as I can remember, and you guys too, there's a 24-hour marathon of the show. Mm-hmm. And no one knows for sure where this tradition started, but... Oh, I never thought of that. They think it was around, like, 1980. Oh, okay. Um, And the beauty of the show is that one man's trash is certainly another man's treasure. 
And it's difficult to say which episodes are the best or the scariest because they all play to different fears and social issues. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic show, and even though it can be a bit rough or extremely dated at times, <laughs> it's still its own unique production and is often the gateway to horror and sci-fi to generations of children past and certainly those to come. Absolutely. And then, you know, inspiring things like contemporarily like Black Mirror and like that that whole format. Yes. Yeah, yeah I wonder. The Twilight Zone stuff I, like I don't that. know if you know, Heather, is is the Twilight Zone like one of the first sort of anthology shows? Um, I was just I was just thinking about that as, as you were talking about it. Like, I, I'm trying to think of if there was one before, but where it is like, you know, it's 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 a show that doesn't follow. Uh, one particular group of people or characters or, you know, or, or is it one place? It's, it's, I mean, it's basically just the most successful. Well, I mean, Rod was working in live television dramas before that. And that seems like it differed from play to play. There are all different Mm. plays like Playhouse 90. That was like a 90 minute block um, for each show. So, I mean, I, I don't, doesn't sound like it was the first anthology show, but um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. If anybody knows, uh, send us an email at under the pendulum yeah. podcast at gmail.com. An angry email. Or you email, can DM please. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we'll get into each of our own episodes that mm-hmm. we chose. Um, like you said, it's it's really hard to choose, right? Like, yeah. They, they're, all, they're all good in their own way. I mean, they all have their own charm. And their own Definitely. their own message, um, yeah. But I picked uh, "Nothing in the Dark," which is episode sixteen of season three. It originally aired on January fifth, nineteen sixty three. Um, and I'll get into why this is one of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. but I I I kind of knew I was gonna do it, and then I like looked through other ones, and I was just like, oh, I love this one and this one. But I kept Same. coming back to this one. Yeah. So yeah. I, I started with one and I was like, well, I might do this one or this one. And then I ended up going back to that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my camera is like fucking weird. That's okay. Yeah, not a focus. Anyway, yeah, it's not like a big deal. It's not like you, the audience, can see me. <laughs> so this episode was directed by Lamont Johnson, who also directed The Shelter and Five Characters Looking for an Exit. Uh, both, oh, wow. Both Dang. of them definitely in my, my top ones. Yeah, they're excellent. And the story was written by George Clayton Johnson, but it was based off a story by Ray Bradbury called Death and the Maiden. There um, is which again. is also such a cool thing about Twilight Zone. Bra- uh, Ray Bradbury worked on it a little bit. Um, I think Richard Matheson worked on it, um, who did I Am Legend and, and stuff. Yeah, it just it's just cool. Like so many like really prolific authors now um worked on the show, or at least two. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize so many directors had done all the episodes. I thought that like everybody or like each season would have just like had a crew of people that just would have kind of done like done it every every single episode. But it was all different people. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really great. Maybe added to, um, you know, how how successful and good it was because it was always a little bit different in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think there was also like some inner tensions and stuff, um, maybe just because of the high pace of the show. Um, yeah. You know, and, and then like there were there were definitely some credits that some people felt like they didn't get. I think Ray um, Bradbury actually didn't think he got enough credit on this one. Um, wow. Yeah. Because it, it's kind of it's it's very different from his. But the premise is is essentially the same. Right. 
So, okay, cool. So, Serling's opening narration is, quote, I wonder if I could do it. <laughs> An old woman living in a nightmare. No, I can't do it. <laughs> you gotta, gotta pull the teeth in. Not so, good, though. <laughs> so, his, his opening uh, narration is, quote, An old woman living in a nightmare. An old woman who has fought a thousand battles with death and always won. Now she's faced with a grim decision. Whether or not to open a door... And in some strange and frightening way, she knows that the seemingly ordinary door leads to the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) So the episode opens on a dingy old basement apartment in a crumbling building. Snow is falling outside. We see an old woman sleeping in her bed. Chairs are set up as a makeshift barricade against her bed and the windows. Wanda Dunn, played by Gladys Cooper lives alone and hasn't ventured outside her apartment in years. The reason, she is trying to cheat death by avoiding him completely. Gladys Cooper was a silent film and stage actress, just as a side note, um, and she was basically in show business, I mean, since the, I don't know, since like the maybe 19-teens, 1920s. Wow. That's cool. So she was uh, pretty old by this by this time. You know, I think she was probably in her 70s. Yeah. But yeah, just a, just as a cool side note, I thought that was really, really that neat. Is neat. She is awoken by some shouting outside her apartment window, which is followed by gunshots in a car screeching away. A man falls outside her door. She watches all of this with fear and suspicion. When the man outside begins calling for help, she goes to the door but does not open it. She accusingly asks who it is and what they want. The shot man tells her that he is a police officer and he needs help right away. Dang. At first, it seems like Wanda won't open the door, but after the police officer tells her that he will die otherwise, she relents and helps him into her apartment. God damn it, you sack of shit. Get on in here. <laughs> it's funny because he's just like, help, I'm, I'm shot. She's just like, I really can't open the door. <laughs> Whatever. What's your, what's your angle, mister? <laughs> yeah, I was like that. So she patches him up and begins making some tea. They get to talking. He tells her his name is Harold Belden, and he's played by Robert Redford. Oh. A young Robert Redford, yep. Ooh, I gotta see this one. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Hmm? Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So, um, and he also says that he'll feel much better when the doctor gets there. Wanda reveals that she did not call the police, nor does she intend to. When Harold asks why... She tells him that she is afraid of Mr. Death. She says that Death disguises himself as different people to get to those who are at their life's end. She had seen him around as she got older, and he had tried to get her in many different ways, but she always avoided him, which is why she hasn't left her apartment in years. A knock at the door frightens Wanda, but Harold prods her to open the door. She opens it slightly only to have a man burst his way in. Oh, shit. The man is a contractor, played by R.G. Armstrong, who's just like a a famous character actor. And he tells her that he is supposed to demolish her building in an hour and that everyone had already relocated except for her. Jesus, man. Everything's coming down all at once on this lady. (laughs) (laughs) So he tries to convince her to leave, and he's very sincere. He's not like a dick. Um, uh, But she's just really stubborn. She just absolutely refuses to leave. Yeah. Um, he, in the end, he has to resort to telling her that he will have her removed by force if she doesn't leave willingly. 
Yeah. And <laughs> Wanda turns to Harold for help, but the contractor does not see Harold on the bed. Mm. When the contractor leaves, she is upset that Harold did not stick up for her after their lovely talk. Uh. When she realizes he doesn't have a reflection, he is in fact Mr. Death, and she faints. I knew it. <gasps> I knew it. <laughs> when she wakes up, she is upset that Death tricked her, but he assures her that he has nothing to fear and he is not scary. There is no explosion or being torn asunder at his presence. Death is just the next step. When she asks when he will begin, he prompts her to look down at her own dead body in its bed. She had died peacefully. Uh-oh. He opens the door, grabs her hand, and gently leads her out into the sunlight. I was going to say, that's one sexy death. <laughs> just like thinking of Robert Redford's face, and he's just talking to her, like looking up, you know, kind of like this. And like, yeah, he does. So <laughs> he gives her like a wink, too. Like, uh, oh, no. He's just like, when, when he's like, come on, we're going. He's just like, huh? Like, ah. But of course, can I offer you some more tea or anything? <laughs> <laughs> Young man. So, Serling leaves with the ending narration. There was an old woman who lived in a room, and like all of us was frightened of the dark, but who discovered in a minute last fragment of her life that there was nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the lights were on. Object lesson for the more frightened among us, in or out of the Twilight Zone. (gasps) So, I, I love this episode for a few reasons. Um... Gladys Cooper is she's just fucking incredible in it. She really gives off this um, sense of absolute terror and suspicion. Yeah. Um, and she's got this really wilting voice. It, 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 she's just really she really captivates you and grabs you. Yeah. And, you know, this leads me to one of the main themes, which is the fear of death, but more importantly, of the unknown. So during her and Harold's initial conversation, she tells him that she was once young, pretty, refined and loved life. And this is punctuated by a scene where she places her wrinkled hand into a beam of sunlight, almost like a prisoner might covet their own freedom, but is now only a fleeting memory. So she has become so afraid of dying that she hasn't actually experienced life in years. And she would rather live no life than to die. And this is really heartbreaking as she has been so consumed by her fear of death that she has denied herself the experiences of what it's like to be alive or the enjoyment of her twilight years. Her fear of mortality has become a fear of life itself. She is afraid of what lies in the darkness of death. Man, another... she'd become like all Goldie Hawn and like death becomes her kind of thing. Where she's <laughs> grabbing this frosting or whatever the fuck that is out of the cabinet and like eating it with her bare hands. That's not living. That's not nope, living. That ain't living. Doesn't matter how many cats you've got. You can only have so many cats. You know. That's right. So another great thing about this episode is the setting. Um, It all takes place within one room, which highlights Wanda's isolation and more importantly, her self-imprisonment. So we we never leave the room. Um, I love that. I I do too. One acts like that. I think that I think that that makes a really strong writer to be able to keep your attention like that. That's so awesome. I completely I completely agree. I mean, because the the. The thing on display is the acting and the dialogue, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's in, I mean, the setting in the, in the, in the episode is really cool, but you don't really think about it. Um, right. But it is, it definitely highlights, you know, it has a very claustrophobic prison feel. 
to it. So much of the episode is a commentary on the fear of death in our in all our struggles with our own mortality. The psychopomp Harold wants her to know that death is not evil or trying to painfully destroy her. His role is a necessary part of life, and it is the next phase of everything. He is not there to tear her soul out, but to guide her gently into that next phase. Oh, also the contractor, um, he's also kind of a living embodiment of death and rebirth. Hmm. as he tears down old buildings to make way for new ones. The contractor gives a short monologue talking about the tearing down of the building, but it's a fitting metaphor for death, and it's a really nice... uh, It's a nice little monologue, Um, so I'll end my my bit on, on the monologue. Okay. Quote, I ain't a monster lady. I've got a heart just like everybody else, but, uh... I could see how you could get attached to a place and not want to see it wrecked, but when a building is old, it's dangerous. It's got to come down to make room for a new one. That's life, lady. Old make room for the new. People get the idea that I'm some kind of destroyer, but they think I get kicks out of uh, tearing stuff down. That ain't the way it is. I just clear the ground so that other people can build. In a way, I help them to do it. Look around, it's the way things are. A big tree falls and a new one grows right out of the same ground. Old animals die and young ones take their place. Even people step aside when it's time. Nice. (laughs) Nice to foreshadow on that one. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more I could say, but um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the the gist of the main theme. Yeah, Um, well... All I got to say is when it's my time, I hope a sexy Robert Redford um, death comes to get my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Gives you a nice little wink. That's right. Or like the Moby uh, natural blues situation with Christina Ricci kind of dragging you through a hallway. (laughs) (laughs) No, not dragging, floating you through a hallway. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, that's the thing I love about the Twilight Zone, too. It's, you know, it is a lot of like people get their comeuppance. But uh, mm-hmm. you have some episodes that are like really end on on good notes. You know, yeah. it's, it's not all um, horrible twists, you know, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that you're just like, oh, um, <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Like there's a there's another episode that I just watched. It was the one where the the old the old guy wants to trade his body for a new one. You know, and so in a blood boy. Yeah. So he finally does, and he's young now. He's like all young now, and he's like going up to his old wife, and he's just like, "We could do everything we've ever wanted. We have another chance at life." But then he realizes that they don't have enough money for her. Oh no. Uh, And so, and then he has a choice to make, and uh, at the end, it's nice because he chooses to go back to his old body, and he's you know he's just like, "Mary, I just want to." I love you. I want to grow old with you. And, you know, let's, let's, let's do all the things with the time we have. And it's just like, oh, it's so sweet. Oh, that's so sweet. He's like, quick, give me a hand job before I don't have a body. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, yeah, that's, um, nothing in the dark. Very nice. So I have to watch that one again. Beautiful one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, like, I, God, I'm not doing it justice at all. Um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely give it a watch again because it it's just wonderful. It it really stuck yeah. with me for, you know, for one reason or another. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll watch it again, possibly today. Should should, should I go next or you go next? Um, 
how about you go, Kate? And then we'll have Heather close us out. Okay. I'm 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 not as prepared as I could be, but I definitely can talk about this for a while. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um so the episode I chose, which is so surprising because there's just so many that I've just always been obsessed with this show. One one runner up was Occurrence at Owl Creek. I love that one. You know, it's an um, Ambrose Beer story. Occurrence yeah, at Owl it's a, Creek. Yeah. I read that. I remember reading it in the literature class in high school and I was like, oh, no shit. I had no idea. Yeah. That one's great, too. Oh, my gosh. The guy with the glasses where he all he wants to do is read. He never has time to read. And then they like break in the end. Kind yeah. of thing. Uh, that that one's classic. I mean, that, that one's so great, but it's such a that one's such a well-known one. I didn't want to. Yeah do it i know know? well that's like that's like doing fear at twenty thousand feet you know everybody (laughs) knows that one (laughs) absolutely so i was originally gonna do um just because it's so exquisitely shot was uh the eye of the beholder oh yeah Um, love that one i loved it me too it's so good and um kind of is like a segue into mine i chose mine specifically for the uh the art direction on it and the artists that they mostly use. So he did all of the masks. His name was, um, I'll talk about this makeup artist real quick. His name was William Tuttle, I believe. William J. Tuttle. I couldn't find oh, we much got another Tuttle. about him for some reason. But he sculpted the faces for Eye of the Beholder and also the monkey guy at, uh, oh, yeah. Up here at 20,000 feet, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he did. He did those like weird baby-ish deformed faces all like the time. Pink noses. Yeah. Yes, he had such a weird style. But yeah, weird. he did like, huh? Oh no, not that. No, go ahead. Oh okay. Um, but yeah, I was, just, I was one... just saying it's funny that we have another Tuttle. This is our second Tuttle in Under the Bed. I know. I thought that too. <laughs> I'm like, what a goofy last name. We'll meet again. He Tuttled on himself. So the the episode I chose is just simply called Masks. I watched this and one the other day. I know I hadn't I hadn't really seen this one in years when I saw it like a couple of years ago. I love this one. It's so good. It's so good. And like it's so simple. It's so odd why it's so good. Yeah. It's again people getting what they deserve and their come up mm-hmm. comeuppance and stuff yeah. like mm-hmm. that. But the most fascinating thing, and I chose this episode before I knew this, but it was the only um, only episode directed by a woman. Oh, and yeah. And her name was... Interesting. Ida. Yeah, her name was Ida Lupino, which she was a crazy fascinating woman of Hollywood. Like, just another one of those people that did a lot, like, paved away a lot, like, did so much. But, like, you know, if you're... I I feel like if you were born past the 80s, you just really wouldn't have heard about this lady. Yeah. But she was like, you know, a sex pot, like um, Jean Harlow kind of type in the 30s. She started Mm. acting when she was like 14 or 15. Um, She came from like a long line of performers from England called the Lupinos. And they had been actors and actresses for like 300 years. Jesus. Kind of thing. So that's all she ever knew and and all that. So um, quickly, an interesting thing about her, too, is she was like a blonde, sexy lady. And then like she was wanted to be a serious actress. And so they told her to like, you know, put your hair back to natural, grow your eyebrows back because they did like the thin, you know, 30s eyebrows Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so she was kind of like um, 
back in the 30s and 40s, Betty Davis is like supporting actress. Like if mm. if Betty Davis wouldn't accept a role, this lady Ida would, but she mm. was an amazing actress. <laughs> oh, okay. So she got sick of that shit and like, you know, did that for years and years and years, like made a name for herself. She was really, really great. And so she ended up like exiting the movie business for a while, but then like came back and like um, married a guy who was a producer and they decided to um, open up a production company together. And she was on a, a film set one day and the director had a heart attack and like couldn't direct anymore. So she just like got her director pants on and just hopped Move on aside, in there. boys. Yeah. Exactly. She- and so then she was... <laughs> She was known as like a really great director because she had been like in the movie business for like 25, 30 years. And she could she knew everything about cameras, like everything about acting, like all of that. And she was just she was great. So that's kind of like a quick bitty on her story. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So this episode was uh, from season five, episode 25, and it aired March 20th, 1964. I guess I'll read the intro as well from Wikipedia here. Very official. (laughs) The opening narration. Mr. Jason Foster, a tired ancient who on this particular Mardi Gras evening will leave this earth. But before departing, he has some things to do, some service to perform, some debts to pay and some justice to meet out. Ooh. This is New Orleans, Mardi Gras time. It is also the Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> in this episode, it's uh, set in this beautiful like New Orleans mansion, and it's Mardi Gras, and they show like people partying in the streets and stuff, mm-hmm. and all their wonderful 1950s costumes and stuff, and like what it would have been like. So great. And um, it's, it's a very, very rich man, and he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And um, he's kind of just like, what's the word? Uh, snappily talking to people about like, yeah, I know I'm dying. He's blah, on, blah, right? like, Yeah, he's just like really drawing it out and making a thing about it. And he's very honorary about it. And um, he, he's talking to his doctor and he's all like, give it to me straight, doctor. You, you've always given it to me straight. How long do I have? And the doctor's just like, well, it's just kind of a matter of time. It happens when it's going to happen. And he's just all like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, but he's not being dramatic, but he's being dramatic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Passive aggressive dramatic. So his whole family, which is a daughter uh, her husband and two children are coming and they're coming to pay their respects and to mostly get his inheritance because he's just he's filthy rich rich yeah but um, <laughs> so he's still in bed and and the doctor goes downstairs to greet the family that has now arrived they're all just like complaining and they all kind of sound like nasty people and they're just like bickering and stuff down there and the the guy's daughter turns around and talks to the doctor. She's like, I remember you. Hi. The doctor's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she's she doesn't even really ask about her dad that's dying. She's all like, I've got this arm thing. Could she I could just want to talk about my arm real quick. And he's all like, you know, your your dad's gonna probably die tonight, kind of thing. And she's like, Oh yes. 
of course. Like very, very sad. Yeah, very sad, very sad. I know. She keeps she keeps saying that she's like, he's like, how are you? And she's like, I'm bearing up, which I guess that means I'm I'm dealing with it. Yeah, kind yeah. Of thing. I'm holding in there. Yeah, <laughs> and man, I wish I had written down some of the things the old man says to these people because he is just like stab, 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 stab with wit, like just <laughs> oof. <laughs> Yeah. No no holds bars. Yeah. So he comes downstairs and he speaks to them and he says, We're, I have a surprise for you guys tonight on this Mardi Gras evening. Um, I'm going to require you, you guys to stay until midnight and I need you to wear a mask for mm-hmm. a couple hours. Probably like about... I don't know, four hours, four hours three or four or hours. Yeah. They make yeah. it sound like it was like four fucking ever. Yeah, like yeah. four so, days or something. Yeah, yeah, that would be serious. <laughs> so he's kind of talking to them and just like really just continuously like m- m- like pinning down like for the viewer or like what kind of people these people are. Mm-hmm. And like like let's say that the, the mother, Emily, she's um, a hypochondriac. And the the husband Wilfred is like a just a just a what's the word? The only book like, you've ever read is your checkbook. That's exactly <laughs> like like an emotionless, humorless businessman, yes. just like no mm-hmm. humanity. Damn, Heather, you're good. How do you remember? That I just stuff? watched this one the other day. So <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So 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 there's a mask for every for that re- reflects the personality of each. Of the family, yeah, members. yeah. Well, or it reflects the opposite of what they um, view themselves as. View themselves that, as. So it's kind of like like what they really are, but yeah, I guess that, yeah. that's the same, right? Yeah. So they get to the son, who is Wilford Junior, and he's just like this big, slack jaw, oafish, like football type of guy. Oh yeah. But he's also kind of like henchmeny and like kind of evil looking. Yeah. And <laughs> um. The, the the father is like, oh, yes, and I remember you. You torturing small animals when you were a boy. He's like, that still holds true, I'm sure. Yeah. And then the daughter, her name's Paula, and she has just been looking in the mirror this entire time. There's mirrors everywhere, and she's putting... I don't know how many times you can put on and take off lipstick, but I guess you do. Yeah, she does and it. And so she, she does it. She needs it, like layers. <laughs> And so he reminds her of how vain she is. Yes. So they all get the shit talking session. They leave and they come back and they like are dressed in their finest. And it's the evening now. And the father comes down and shows them the masks they'll be wearing. And so let's see. The first mask uh, for Emily is a sniveling coward mask. The second for Wilfred is a miserable miser. The Third for Wilford Jr. is a twisted buffoon. And the fourth for Paula is a narcissist. And they're all again in that um, Tuttle style where they're really like kind of like babyish and like lots of cheek and lots of like deformed yeah. looking. Yeah, it's like know, really accentuating like like natural wrinkles and things. Yeah. Like, I, I actually I love the way the masks look. They look. They, they look do. really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very animated and like caricature-ish of these people and exactly, like a, yeah. and an aesthetic in general that you don't really see in the Twilight Zone so, so much unless it's a 
creature kind of thing or an alien sort of thing or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of nice. But he tells them that these masks were made very special by like a Cajun medicine man kind of thing. And um, they hold like certain powers. So they have to wear it. Or, and they're like, I don't want to. This is dreadful. What? And they're complaining, complaining, complaining. And he like reminds them, he's like, you're going to get everything. I'm not going to be around for much longer. But if any of you don't wear these masks, you get a one-way ticket back to Boston. Mm -hmm. Like, that's it. So they wear their masks and they look great because it fits the character and personality so well. Like Mm -hmm. the one for Emily's just like really like, like kind of face with like a pointy nose and like the, the, um, the sun is just like, you know, when like the term meathead, it's like a total like depiction of a meathead or it's just like little tiny eyes and mostly like skull and mostly face. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Mostly face. (laughs) And then, like, the narcissist one, um, she looks great because it's just, like, really pouty lips and, like, a upturned nose, but, like, mm-hmm. really, like, gross, like, grotesque, like, um, gaunt eyes kind of thing. And so they're wearing their mask. Oh, and the father's wearing a skull, a skull mask because he's going to be dead soon. So mm-hmm. that's, like, what his representation is. And... So they're wearing it, they're wearing it, they start freaking out. It's been hours and hours, grandfather, let us take this mask off, I'm going crazy! <laughs> <laughs> and so he gives a monologue, I forget what the fuck he says, but he's just like, tough titty said the kitty, <laughs> and he dies. <laughs> and he just kind of like reminds them all that they are exactly what they see in the mirror and stuff. Yeah. And so when this guy dies, this shit is so funny. You, you don't, they don't even call a doctor. They don't call any help in the room. They just check his pulse and then they go, yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Finally. <Yay>. Jesus. <laughs> don't even take their mask off or anything. And so, uh, yeah, no help, no nothing. And so finally, they the, the mother, Emily, takes her mask off and she looks in the mirror and she just lets out the scream. And uh, the father let, like takes off his mask too and they all just start screaming. And it's these prosthetics are on their face where the mask they were wearing now are their faces. Mm-hmm. And it just looks absolutely perfect for the time and it's great and it's just gnarly. <laughs> and... They do inherit everything, but they're going to look minging for the rest of their lives. <laughs> it reminds me of the, uh, uh, what's that? God, I, I always get confused. What's the one with the cat or the guy's trying to kill the cat? Um, uh, Tales from the Dark Side. From the Dark yeah, Side. But it was like yeah, the guy line. from New York Dolls. Oh, it's the guy for the, the, old li- or the old man's line where he's like, get what you want. You get everything you want. <laughs> you like, love saying anything that. you could ever want. Like, <laughs> Chris, you always have said that. It's so funny. I just like doing the voice. It's great. Anything you could wa- You do it really well. That guy, <laughs> it's a pity that that guy can't be around forever because he was so scary. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, anyway, no. that was my, my long-winded one, but I just, I love, love the the art in that. It's so good. Is that, so, like, would you say that's what 
draws you the like to that episode more than others is like the the art and like the the, the makeup and absolutely because that was one the reason i was going to do beauty uh the i don't want to keep saying it but the eye of the beholder is because i just think that that makeup is so amazing and strange and yeah. it's nothing like we've, we've ever seen again kind of thing because i don't i think that it was considered kind of goofy like later on like the bulbousy kind of texture yeah. of some of these faces <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's so original and so twilight zone and i love it yeah, yeah it, it's funny because you you know you made me think about um there are uses of like wrinkles and like rolls because i mm-hmm. i was just thinking about uh hocus pocus and frisbee which is like this episode where it's the old the the guy who runs a store and he keeps telling all these big whopper lies, you know, and everybody's just like, sure, Frisbee. And uh, he's just like, no, I, you know, I was uh, I killed 50 men with like a, with a fork or, you know, it's just some stupid, mm-hmm. stupid shit. He's just always full of shit. But like uh, aliens think that he's like the smartest man. Because he keeps telling people, like, I've got eight degrees. I'm, uh, you know, like, I can tell the weather just by, just, you know, sticking my finger in the air. So, like, <laughs> yeah, the responsibility when people believe you or, like, what, the, what would come with that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so they want to take him back <laughs> to their planet because they think he's, the, he's like, the, the most supreme specimen of, of humanity. Um, but it's the, the alien wrinkles are really interesting because it's, like, this weird lizards, but they have, like, several rolls over their mouth and eyes. It's But it, it kind of reminds me of those masks now, which maybe it is Tuttle. Um, oh, maybe it's his you, work. what was that episode called? It's called Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. I believe that it's – I believe it's season three. I'm pretty sure it's season three. Oh, I bet it was him. He was, yeah. like, the guy on deck that did all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a great choice, man. Actually, that one was on my list. Yeah, that um, is a good that's one. Sure. Yeah, it's a great yeah. one. It's a good um, message, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's like that. Um, you know, you're. I guess you know it's sort of like uh, trying to think what like what's that saying where it's like you're 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 only as beautiful on the outside as you are on the inside or something mm-hmm. some shit like that. You know, you, you are what you eat. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It. <laughs> well, uh, I guess it's your turn, Heather. You want to close us out here? Yeah. Um, so my episode is not in any way thought-provoking. It is in no way. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it really stands out for more than it being the originator of of a genre. Really, the creepy Ooh. doll. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna do living doll. Fucking great one, man. Is this Talking Tina? Yes. Mm-hmm. Girl. Talking Tina. Yes. This, that always <laughs> reminds me of you because you used to see, there's like a year you just used to say it all the time. Yeah, I I'm love this one. I'm Talking Tina and I don't like you. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. Anyway, we'll, we'll let, you, let you go on. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, so this is episode 126. That's season five, episode six, and it aired November 1st, 1963. The same year mom was born. Oh, I know. Nice. I was just thinking, like, most of this is around when our parents were born. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this opens with my favorite opening sequence with the groovy eyeball in space and the breaking window and the theme song. You know, there's so different good. openings, but this one's my favorite yeah. by far. So we open with a mother. Her name is Annabelle, and she's played by Mary LaBroche, and a daughter named Christy. She's played by Tracy Stratford. And they're arriving home with tons of boxes from a day of shopping. 
It's Christy's birthday, and she asks her mom if she can give show her new gift to Daddy. And Annabelle says, not right away. And they go inside. When they go into the house, stupid butt-face Eric Streeter, Kelly Savalas, <laughs> is plugging away at balancing his checkbook or something, and he asks, what did you buy? Chrissy shows him her new doll, Talkie Tina, and he is not happy about it. It's a doll that you wind up and its arms flap back and forth and it talks. And it says, my name is Talkie Tina and I love you very much. Well, what the fuck the hell is the problem with that? I work 12 hours at the goddamn salt mines and you're spending my money on a fucking doll? I fucking it's like basically what he's like. Yeah. I drive a Dodge Stratus. He is a horrible, <laughs> horrible man. Mm-hmm. So Eric is annoyed by the fact that Christy has gotten another doll and grills Annabelle about how much it cost right in front of Christy. Annabelle says that she put it onto the account and keeps going, but he keeps going in on her about the price. So Annabelle tells Eric that she doesn't think it's the price of the doll that's upsetting him and insinuates that he is the reason that Christy feels rejected. Or wait, maybe what's upsetting him is that he can't be the doll and he can't be a pretty, pretty girl. Maybe. And get his hairbrush He's a, and go pee pee. I hate him so diapy. much. He's a yeah. great villain. <laughs> so he yells at Christy to shut that thing off and the girls go upstairs and they're pissed off at him. But when they're out of the room, Eric winds up the doll himself and she says, My name is Talkie Tina and I don't think I like you very much. <laughs> and then we t- cut to Rod Serling, who says, Talkie Tina, the doll that does everything. A lifelike creation or plastic springs and painted smile. To Eric Streeter, she is the most unwelcome addition to his household. But without her, he'd never enter the Twilight Zone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you had the cadence pretty well. I like that. Yeah, no, when you when you said talking Tina, talking Tina. I tried talking Tina, <laughs> talking Tina. S- smoke more cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, <good>. right. <laughs> so when we return, Talky Tina is still talking shit to Eric and warns him that he'll be sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and he throws her across the room. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> it's so funny. So Annabelle comes downstairs and she's disgusted by him throwing the doll and he tries to show her that the doll says a bit more than advertised, but it's the same old I love you very much when she, you know, winds it up. Then after Eric saying some very hurtful things, we find out that he's the stepfather. I hate he's him. He's not even the real father. Ugh. I don't know, but I hate him. And Annabelle needs to get the fuck out, you know? She Mm -hmm. does. And after he whines and carries on a while, Annabelle tries to convince him that things will get better. Christy apologizes for making Eric angry, and she takes Tina. So as the family is eating dinner together, Tina winks at Eric while no one is looking, which causes him to grow more agitated. He starts arguing with Annabelle again, saying some seriously awful things again in front of Christy. And then the girls leave the room. And Tina says what, what we're all thinking, really. My name is Talkie Tina, and I'm beginning to hate you. And wow. Tina keeps threatening Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Eric is suspicious that it's a setup between Annabelle and Christy and accuses Annabelle of putting a walkie-talkie inside the doll. And Annabelle is getting freaked out by Eric's comments about the doll talking to him when no one's in the room. 
and rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he goes out into the garage and Tina is flapping her arms all by herself and he tosses her in a metal barrel. As Tina warns him, he'll be sorry. So later, Christy asks where Tina is and he says that he doesn't know. And he's being a real smug shit sandwich again. <laughs> then the phone rings and Tina tells him that she's going to kill him. <laughs> he goes out into the garage and sees that Tina is no longer in the barrel and he's getting visibly freaked out. However, he still thinks the girls are pulling a prank. And Annabelle is like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. All these fucking women are against me. <laughs> right? I, I gotta say, I kind of love when Heather hates somebody because she says the funniest shit. <laughs> I, I hate this guy. <laughs> real smug shit sandwich. <laughs> There's a shit storm coming. <laughs> so Eric goes upstairs to Christy's room and sees that Tina is on her pillow in the bed with her. And Tina's talking shit again and wakes up Christy. <laughs> and he snatches Tina up and Christy starts to cry. And Christy says, Daddy, please. And he yells back, I'm not your daddy. Fucking asshole. Oh, why? Dude, God, dude, piece of shit. I know, dude. Talking Tina, and meanwhile, is like installing like multiple types of Velcro so she can stab him in various <laughs> different ways. <laughs> <laughs> Just like yeah, right here oh, and here. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes Tina back into the garage and twice to, tries to squeeze her in a vice grip burn her, saw her head off. But, of course, she's evil and she's impervious to all of his attempts. And Annabelle comes out to see what the commotion is and he pushes her away. Oh, my and, God. And he finally wraps her up in a burlap bag, tosses her in the barrel again and weights the lid with bricks and Tina giggles from inside the barrel. Is oh. that all you got, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, Annabelle is packing up her shit and Eric has the gall to ask why. He tries to explain that the doll is talking to him, and Annabelle is like, you're crazy. He asks if he gives Tina back to Christy, would that solve things? And she's like, I, I just don't know, Eric. The answer is no, Annabelle. It's no. <laughs> it's always no. You're in a toxic relationship. You need to leave. Yes. <laughs> So Eric goes back down to the barrel once again to get Tina, and Tina tells him that she doesn't forgive him. And then he takes her back upstairs to Christy and goes to bed. She's like, you may be able to walk over my mommy, but not over me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so while in sleep in, uh, asleep in bed, he hears the grinding of Tina's gears out in the hallway, and he goes to investigate. And he checks Christy's room, and Tina's not there. Then he follows the sound downstairs, but wouldn't you know it, Tina trips him at the top of the stairs and he falls down to his death. Then Tina says oh. to Annabelle, My name is Taki Tina, and you better be nice to me. Now Taki Tina's running that fucking house. Yeah. <laughs> I just totally saw the, the doll in my head after she like trips the guy, like pressing one of one of those that was easy buttons. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeez. So this episode was not written by Serling and is credited to Charles Beaumont, but it was actually ghost written on his behalf as he was suffering a brain disorder that would soon kill him. And I think Beaumont worked on a few of the episodes uh, oh as well. And uh, Tina was based on a popular doll, Chatty Cathy, 
And they asked the original voice actor, June Foray, uh, that did Chatty Cathy, to do the voice for Tina, and she did. Oh, that's fucking awesome. That's Whoa. super yeah. cool. <laughs> that's why it sounds so good. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So this episode has spawned a few parodies over the years, and it is clear that this episode was one of the big inspirations for Child's Play. Now, another influence that came from this episode uh, comes from the mother's name, Annabelle, which is also a modern-day horror franchise of the same name about an evil doll. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. Although I have to say, I think in this in this instance, uh, Taki Tina's not the evil one. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. If she says to Annabelle in the end, you better be nice to me. So she's vengeful. I mean, if you're not, yeah, you know, that's true. if you're not like perfect to the doll, then she's going to fuck your shit up, which I don't know. I think, I think she's evil. Uh, hell she's knoweth evil. no fury like a doll's, like a doll yeah. scorn. <laughs> yep. So how, how, how does he, uh, how does Sterling end this episode? Give us, give us a nice ending here. Oh boy. Okay. So he says. Of course, we all know that dolls can't really talk, and they certainly can't commit murder. But to a child caught in the middle of a turmoil and conflict, a doll can become many things. Friend, defender, guardian. Especially a doll like Takitina, who did talk and commit murder in the misty region of the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that line was funny, too. Yeah. <laughs> Who did line? talk and commit murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she did talk All right. and kill. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, that was fun, guys. I, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I had, when we decided to do this, it sparked me to, to, you know, throw Twilight Zone on for a day or two. Oh, my God. Yeah. I literally ones. could talk about the Twilight Zone for days. Like, yeah. Not even notice time go by. I love I know. The Twilight Zone. I know. There's so much we could talk about. I mean, like, I know we're, we're like over time a little bit now. So I so See, you didn't even notice it. <laughs> I know. 83 minutes just goes by like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> rules. No, it's I mean, man, it's it's just it's and it's so fitting for like several different times of the year. I mean, it's good for ha- yes. it's great for Halloween. It's great for Christmas, New Year's, um, you know, it's it, put it on Thanksgiving. Do, I think they yeah. do Independence Day marathons, too, sometimes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go watch it. Yeah, and, then, and then they had the uh, you know, they, they revamped it in the 80s, I think, 80s, 90s. Uh, the movie. Yeah. Um, th- well, they also uh, revamped the show. I think in the eighties. Oh, did didn't they? they? Oh. I think I thought they did. I don't think it was. Well, as are you thinking good. a night gallery? No, I'm not thinking a night gallery. Um, no, I'm pretty sure there was like a like a maybe it came back. Maybe it was the movie. Maybe I'm just being confused. No, I think you're right too. Chris. But, but then, but then around that same that. time, you also had the Outer Limits, which is pretty good too. Mm-hmm. Um, Tales from yeah. the Dark Side. Tales from the Dark Side. Yep. Man. Yep. <laughs> pretty awesome. I yeah. didn't really watch. I watched like maybe two episodes of the one that came out just a few years ago. Uh, Jordan Peele. Yeah, oh, was yeah. It good. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it's uh it doesn't quite quite live up to the to the old one, but uh, there were there were a couple couple decent ones for sure. Yeah. The 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 one with the kid, the the president. Oh, I didn't that see that a, one. Oh, that one's actually kind of interesting. You know, I think that, that the, one's really good, actually. <laughs> I think the biggest mistake that he made 
was tacking the name of the Twilight Zone onto the show because I think that mm-hmm. really set people's expectations up and it may not have gotten as much merit as it deserved. Because yeah, that. that's very true. I mean, there, there were there yeah. were some pretty some pretty good episodes. A couple a couple of them were like a little on the nose. Yeah, um, which yeah. I guess the original. I guess the original was sort of on the nose sometimes too, but yeah. it seemed like uh, his was a little. But otherwise, it, it wasn't bad. You know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't like it was fine. Super hate it from what I saw. Oh, hey, kitty. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so yeah, I guess we should do socials then. Um, yeah, um, you know, just encourage everybody to go out and watch some Twilight Zone in the spooky season. Yes. Oh yeah. Or so, anytime you like. Yeah, but it's it's really good for it is just good for any time. Yeah. Like I, I still just put it on the background sometimes and Oh yeah. The same. You know. So you can follow us on Facebook at Under the Pendulum Podcast, on Instagram at Under Pendulum Podcast, on Twitter at Pendulum underscore pod, on TikTok at Under Pendulum Podcast. Yep. I believe. And you can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or almost anywhere else you listen to your pods. You can find me, Heather, on Facebook, Heather Thomas, Instagram, h.n.thomas, Twitter, Heather W. Thomas, and you can hear my narrations on Creepy, Tales to Terrify, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and the Wicked Library. (laughs) Nice. Wicked library. Ooh, that sounds like a sexy place. <laughs> it's like either sexy or, or horrible torture, Wicked Library. <laughs> um, and you can find me on uh, Instagram under Frothy Star Dog. And you can find me on Facebook by searching for Christopher Weber and on Instagram by searching for Christopher Weber 13V, as in Victor. <laughs> well, Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy (laughs) Halloween, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we will see you next time. Goodbye. Don't get any razor blades in your Snickers now. (laughs) 